Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and don't be bitter toward them. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, these words are simple, but hard. Easy to understand, perhaps hard to accept for many, and certainly difficult to obey. And we need the grace of the Spirit, not only to grasp and embrace these principles, but also to live them. And so we ask that by the Spirit this day, you would make us hearers and doers of the word, all for Christ's sake. And we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Some years ago, a popular radio host and commentator put together what she called a rite, R-I-T-E, a ritual, a rite for doing something wrong. This is her characterization of the nature of commitments that men and women make nowadays. Here's the way modern-day commitment is carried out. I take you to be my live-in lover, to share some of my bed and some of my bills. I enter this arrangement with no real expectation that it will work out, which is why I'm choosing not to marry you. Let's face it, we don't know each other well enough to make a commitment. We just like sleeping together. My decision, to the extent it was a decision and not just an impulse driven by fear, loneliness, or lust, is based on hormones, economics, and convenience. If this arrangement becomes inconvenient, I retain the right to leave you at any time for any reason and not be accountable to anyone for my decision. I will stay with you as long as you interest me and meet my needs, or until someone I like better comes along. Because I expect the same from you, I will maintain a certain emotional distance from you. That way, if either one of us decides to leave, it won't hurt as much. It will also make it possible for me to more quickly enter into a similar arrangement with someone else. If you get really sick or lose your looks, or prove to be a person who has deep needs which may drain my emotional energy, I will try to stick around for a respectable period of time so I won't appear shallow or self-absorbed. But then I will probably leave and never look back. I expect you to do the same. If our birth control method fails and we conceive a child, we can either get married out of guilt or shame, or one of us can leave believing the other is not a fit parent. Or we can have the baby killed to preserve the sanctity of our personal freedom. Raising children, after all, requires commitment and responsibility, the very things we are trying to avoid by living together without the benefit of marriage. If we do decide at some point to make a public commitment to one another, I realize that our decision to live together before making that commitment significantly reduces our chances of having a successful marriage. I feel better having stated these things so that neither of us has any illusions. Well, it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? And yet, it's what we hear all the time. It's what we see all the time. This is our culture. This is the way it expresses itself. This is the nature of the commitments that it makes. And so as we consider uh, the matter of marriage, we understand how countercultural biblical Christianity is in almost every single way, and especially in terms of commitment between a man and a woman for life together. But it's not just the challenges from without that test the church. We recognize the challenges within, don't we? In our own marriages, faced with the reality of our own indwelling sin and the sins of our spouse, we can easily get discouraged, grow bitter, 
and lose hope. And so we need to realize that the problems in our marriages are not caused by a war. They are caused by a war within our own hearts. As the Puritans would say, until our own sin is bitter, our marriages will never be sweet. But once we accurately diagnose the heart of the problem, which is our own sinful hearts, then we can apply the remedy of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. And our marriages can be healed and renewed and bring us great earthly joy. So here's the big idea that I want you to consider this morning and to believe. Christ's glory and grace are sufficient to strengthen and sustain godly marriages. Christ's glory and grace are sufficient to strengthen and sustain godly marriages. Now, if you look at our passage, you'll notice Paul's instructions are simple. In two brief verses, he sets forth instructions for wives and husbands. And we need to hear what God has to say to us in these verses. But we need to understand them in the context of what has just come before, as well as what the whole Bible has to say about marriage. And so I want us to take up this topic in three parts. First, we need to esteem marriage biblically. We need a biblical vision of marriage from the whole counsel of God. Second, we need to embrace the gospel actively. We need to apply the grace of the gospel to our spouse. And if we are preparing for marriage, for our, our future spouse. And then third, we need to exercise our roles faithfully. We must fulfill our God-giving roles for our mutual good and the glory of God. So first, let's consider esteeming marriage biblically. The scripture tells us in Hebrews 13, verse 4, that marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Marriage is to be highly prized, and married couples are to keep themselves exclusively for one another, lest they incur God's judgment. So marriage must be prized, and it must be kept pure. And so as we consider that honorable union, it's good to be reminded of the nature of that which a husband and wife covenant together to do. The nature of biblical marriage. So, I'm just going to give you some reminders. Some of you may know these things. To some of you, they may be brand new. But we always need to hear the basics over and over again. And so I want to set out a couple of things so that we might have a common understanding. And the first observation or reminder that I would give is that marriage is of divine origin. Marriage is of divine origin. It is not man's idea it is not the product of social evolution. It is not the result of cultural change. It is not the product of government invention. Marriage is a God-designed, God-defined relationship, a divine institution. As we read at the very beginning of Genesis 2, it was designed and instituted by God himself in paradise before man had ever sinned in his innocence. When nothing was wrong, when everything was right, in the best place, the best being in the universe, God himself instituted that there would be a relationship between a man and a woman that would be called marriage. And then, so it is a blessed institution. It has the hand and design of God upon it. And so as we think about marriage, we realize it's ordained by God's wisdom, it's governed by his will, and it's entirely dependent on his grace if it is to be carried out for his glory. The second observation is that marriage is beneficial in its purpose. 
Marriage is designed by God to be a beneficial companionship. We have to remind ourselves, at least in the culture in which we live, that marriage was not instituted as bondage, but as a benefit to man. You remember what we read as the Lord looked over his incredible creation in that time when there had been no sin. He had said, in fact, at every stage of creation, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he comes and he sees the man by himself and he says, that's not good. And so God, in his kindness, brought him a woman. God said, I will make him a helper that is suitable and fit for him, someone who will support him and help him with regard to the responsibilities that I have given him. An equal, yet different and indispensable companion. The woman is created for the man. The woman is taken from the man, for the man, brought to the man, and made one with the man. And this is the pattern before the fall. Now, this is important because redemption restores what sin destroyed. It restores the good order. Marriage is a beneficial companionship with a harmony worked out in different roles. The man working, tending, leading, and the woman helping and supporting. The man oriented to his calling, the woman oriented to the man. And so the very ground and purpose for marriage is companionship. It's designed for the mutual help and comfort of husband and wife, right? Because man needs the help. The term helper does not imply a natural or a spiritual inferiority. Right? It's all men's wisdom to seek the help of your wife because that's what God made her for. If you say, I don't need your help, you are a fool. We need the blessing of companionship, but we also need the help. It's a blessed relationship, a gift of God given to man so he'll be fulfilled and complete. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Husbands, this woman with you is the best temporal blessing you have, apart from the heavenly gift of God's Son. Prize her, because she is that good thing. If you ever refer to your marriage as a ball and a chain, and a chain you are looking at it contrary to God's will. Richard Baxter said, It is a mercy to have a faithful friend that loveth you entirely to whom you may open your mind and communicate your affairs. And it is a mercy to have so near a friend to be a helper to your soul and to stir up in you the grace of God. Martin Luther wrote, There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, a communion or company, than a good marriage. So this is a wonderful benefit. And if we look at marriage in any other way than being designed of God and a benefit, then we are looking at it the wrong way. Marriage is not a bondage, but a benefit and a blessing. Third, marriage is permanent in its duration. Marriage is designed by God to be a permanent commitment. It is called a covenant, a binding promise that they, by the grace of God, will keep to the end of their days. It's not based on a contract or conditions or circumstances or compatibility. Right? Sin makes us all incompatible, so compatibility cannot be the ground of marriage. Marriage is grounded in commitment. Moses wrote in Genesis 2, verse 24, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Jesus commented on this leaving and cleaving and said, Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now this commitment requires radical, personal, daily self 
denial on the part of the woman and the man to one another's welfare and benefit to the end of their days. It is giving yourself 100% to your spouse without counting the cost, expecting nothing in return, no strings attached. This is a commitment for your life. It is not a trivial passing thing. You don't enter into marriage simply to satisfy your own needs, but to give yourself for the glory of God and the good of the other and find your joy in that. One has said, At marriage, a single man and a single woman die to self, and the two become one flesh. The wedding marks the end of the former man and woman. Christian marriage vows are the inception of a lifelong practice of death, of giving over not all you have, but all you are. And so this marriage commitment is unto death. It is not to be broken. Divorce is always the result of sin. Marriage is a commitment that is so sacred that God himself sets up a commandment and says, you shall not defile it. You shall not commit adultery. It will not, it should not be either defiled or dissolved. And fourth, marriage is unique in its character. Marriage is designed by God to be an intimate communion between a man and a woman. It's defined by a leaving of parents and a cleaving to one's spouse. Marriage is designed to be a relationship of one fleshed unity, the most intimate of all earthly relations. It is such a unique relationship that you know, maybe we can think of the best friendships in Scripture. You know, I think especially that relationship of David and Jonathan, where it said that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Right? They were knit together. They were tied together as two common fabrics. And yet, as close and as intimate and as dear and as precious as that relationship was, there is no relationship as near and dear and close and intimate as the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And so this one flesh relationship entails more than sexual intimacy. It is the profound fusion of two lives into one shared life together. You can't put a key on one door and say to your spouse, this room is none of your business. No, there is no other relationship like this on earth. It's not just living together, it's sharing lives together, the whole person. Fifth, marriage is instructive in its example. Marriage is precious in the picture it reflects of the relationship between Christ and his church. It manifests the most glorious mystery. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, as he seeks to give a good ground for the woman's submission and the husband's sacrificial love. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. What was not known and not revealed until the coming of Christ is that this union of husband and wife, this one flesh relationship was designed by God at the beginning to be a prophetic picture, an earthly analogy of the intimate and eternal relationship which would exist between Christ and his church. And so marriage is an earthly picture of an eternal reality. The relationship of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, to his people. The scripture presents Christ as the bridegroom, the lover, the sacrificer, the redeemer, the protector, the defender of his bride. And it presents the church as that one who submits and trusts and follows him no matter what. Marriage is ordained by God to reflect that blessed reality the loving care of Christ over his church, and the loving submission of the church to her bridegroom. Every marriage, every place in the world 
reflects that heavenly reality. It either reflects it by perverting it or reflects it by conforming to it. And so if someone says, what is the gospel? How do I understand the work of God and his grace? How do I understand the rule of Christ? How do I understand the character of the church? Then we ought to be able to say, look at this marriage. What does it mean that Christ loves the church sacrificially? Well, prayerfully, it would be the way the husband lives his life for the welfare and sanctification and holiness and joy of his bride. What does it mean then to follow such a bridegroom as this loving, mighty Christ? Well, prayerfully, we'll be looking at the wife and saying, it's the way that she submits and follows her own husband to support him. In other words, this is to be a living picture. We walk together reflecting that great reality. And so this is a very precious institution because it reflects something that is more precious than anything else, the saving relationship of God to a humble and believing people. Marriage is revelatory of the gospel. And therefore, abuse, divorce, spousal neglect are evil because they communicate that Christ himself has no regard for his bride. He abuses his bride. He neglects his bride. And the bride treats Christ like a little boy. If we act contrary to the way scripture directs us, we distort the picture of the gospel. Every marriage is designed to be a reflection of Christ and the church, and it is either an accurate or an inaccurate reflection. Marriage is a Christ-centered, Christ-enabled, Christ-reflecting relationship. And then six, marriage is doxological in its goal. Marriage is ordered not ultimately for our gain, but for God's glory. We are put together to do together what we could not do alone, namely, to bring glory to God together. This isn't about the husband and wife getting together, just simply that they may enjoy themselves and enjoy one another, which, Lord willing, they will. But it's that they, enjoying one another as one flesh, will be able, as one flesh, to serve and worship the living God for his glory. It's all about him. It isn't about us. It's about him. And so they come together for the glory of God, to live for his honor and for his praise. And so that's the first thing I would set before you. Esteem marriage biblically. And then secondly, embrace the gospel actively. Paul's progression of thought establishes a significant lesson about marriage. Before he assembles his specific instructions to husbands and wives in verses 18 and 19, he lays a gospel foundation in verses 1 through 17. The Bible's instructions about marriage begin with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every husband and every wife needs the Savior. They are helpless without him. Frustration and confusion follow where this truth is not embraced. Marriage can be faithfully practiced and fully enjoyed only by those who have received the gospel grace of Christ and who, in dependence upon Christ, are actively appropriating and exercising gospel graces. And so I just want to simply give you a couple of exhortations and admonitions with respect to embracing the gospel actively in your marriage. And the first thing that I would exhort you to is to exalt Christ intentionally. He is the foundation stone and the fountain head. Look to him. Love him. Learn of him. Lean on him. Stay close to him. Make him main and plain and first in your marriage. 
You who have been joined together have been first joined to him. Keep your first love. Do not forget him in the midst of your whole marriage. Don't be like Martha and forget the one thing needful, and that is to seek Christ, to trust in Christ, to lean with your whole souls upon the Savior. As you received Christ Jesus, so live in him, rooted and established in the Lord Jesus Christ. The better relationship you have with him, the better it will be with one another. The more richly the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ dwell in you, the more richly you will dwell together. So how is your individual relationship with Christ? If Christ is the life of your lives, then he will be the life of your marriage lives. Second, expect your marriage realistically. Or if you're dating, enter into your marriage realistically. Remember that your spouse married a sinner in need of the Savior, and so did you. Each spouse was once the seed of Adam, guilty, fallen, sold to sin. But now in Christ, by God's grace, each is a child of the living God, forgiven, made new, and dwelt by the Spirit of Christ. None has arrived at perfection, even as we seek to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Right? In other words, there's going to be friction. There's going to be challenges. Right? There, there always are. And so carry out your relationship realistically. Now, what realities must I recognize? There's a common created dignity. Right? Men and women have an equal created dignity. Both husband and wife are image bearers, special among all creation, and worthy of one another's care. There's a common poor family history, or a common sin nature. All right, when you put that ring on your spouse on your wedding day, you put that ring on a sinner. We must realize that our sin makes us fundamentally incompatible. Right, you put the nicest people together, and sin is going to make a mess of it. Even though being redeemed, there is still a warfare within, which often becomes the warfare without. And so we need to remember our common frailty. We need to acknowledge our sinfulness. I, I like what Dave Harvey says in his book, When Sinners Say, I Do. The biggest problem in my marriage is me. Right? That is the issue. Sin is the issue. And we need to understand that there are going to be conflicts because of sin. And there is a common redemptive privilege. There's no second-class status in terms of redemption. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. A husband and wife who live together as co-heirs of heaven will be loath to look down upon one another and dishonor one another. They will try to make a heaven on earth because that's where they're going together. They will not fail to put one another often in mind of those hopes and that inheritance. Happy are those people who relate together as those who shall live together in glory. And if you can get a handle upon these things and think realistically about your spouse, then you will regard and treat your spouse differently. So I just tell you simply this, something I've learned. Temper your expectations and fortify your graces. We ought to have expectations, but don't let your relationship be strained by unmet expectations. Encourage one another on the way to glory.
Third, execute sin habitually. Be killing the sins that want to kill you and your marriage. Paul lists two groups of sins in verses 5 and 8, right? Sins of perverted love or sexual sins and sins of perverted perverted hate or social or speech sins. So many marriages are lost here. These are the sins that shatter trust, rupture relationships, break covenants. Take your sin seriously. Show it no mercy. Execute it habitually. Marriage requires a couple to commit to humble conflict resolution. When you get married, you sign up to sin against and be sinned against by your spouse more than any other person. Friction and conflict are sure to come, so keep short accounts with God and with one another where sin is concerned. So whenever you sin, remember that the gospel comes first. Remember that you need the Savior. And so keep short accounts with God. In Christ, he gives sinners like you acceptance. In Christ, he makes sinners like you able to put off sinning and to pursue righteousness. Be quick to confess your sins because he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when your sin causes the collateral damage of conflict and friction in your marriage, again, remember that the gospel comes first. Remember that you need the Savior. And so keep short accounts with one another. Be quick to acknowledge your personal sin to your spouse, to seek their forgiveness, to pursue reconciliation. Be committed to forgiving each other. Maintain a fervent desire to be at peace, to bear no grudge, to indulge no bitterness. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Fourth, exchange graces and gifts constructively. Establish patterns of practice in your marriage that allow gospel graces to be cultivated and exercised. Uh, This is where I have fallen so short. Pray together. Pray for each other. Pray for the protection of your marriage. Read and discuss your Bibles together regularly. By doing these, you will better bear your spiritual burdens and desires with one another. Seek to actively encourage one another in Christ. In summary, here here are the mutual graces and gifts that we need to exchange. A mutual charity or affection. This is what we owe to one another. The home atmosphere should be love. It should not be a minefield. It's love that lasts. I love what J.I. Packer wrote. He said, in choosing a spouse, one should look, not necessarily for one whom one does love here and now, but for one whom one can love with steady affection on a permanent basis. We need to exchange mutual commitment or attachment. The husband and wife are to be visibly attached to one another. The Puritans said, be much together, be always dwelling together, be often speaking together, be often spending time together, be not absent much from one another. Your biggest desire, second to the Lord, should be for your spouse. Entertain no options. This is non-negotiable. You're married for life. Exchange a mutual care or assistance. We have a mutual interest in each other's physical and spiritual well-being. 
We promote each other's physical comfort and spiritual sanctification. We help each other. Exchange mutual communication or association. Right? Not only of words, but also of bodies, gifts, graces, and possessions. Right? There is that sense of oneness. And exchange mutual confession and covering of sin or acknowledgement and absolution. We keep short accounts where sin is concerned. Be committed to biblical restoration and reconciliation and conflict resolution. And so, dear friends, marriage must be worked at. It's not automatic. It is a blessing. It is a labor of love, but it is a labor that we are to be active in. Don't give up. Don't get weary. Press on in his grace. Seek his grace and be faithful till the end. So we are to esteem marriage biblically. We are to embrace the gospel actively. And finally, we are to exercise our God-given roles faithfully. The faithful practice of marriage applies roles and responsibilities that Paul sets forth in relatively simple and straightforward fashion. Right? Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Husbands are to love their wives and not be bitter toward them. And these responsibilities are reaffirmed numerous times in the scriptures. The submission on the part of the wife is to take place in the context of her calling to be the husband's help. And the love on the part of the husband is to take place in the context of his role as the wife's head. These respective roles are rooted in the created order. There was, before the fall of Adam, a structure of hierarchy worked out in harmony. So these are not cultural accommodations, but creation-ordered roles and responsibilities. Okay, so first, a word to wives. Sisters, God has given you the role of being the helper and the support and the complement, not the competitor, of your husband. In a real sense, he is to be your primary ministry. And the way in which you carry out that primary ministry is set forth with these words, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now let me acknowledge frankly and right away that at first glance, at least this text does not sit easily with many people in this age of heightened sensitivity to the abuse of power. In the age of Me Too and abuse scandals for many people, Paul sounds terribly, alarmingly repressive here. And then add to that the tragic experience of too many, particularly women and children, perhaps even some of you here today. The tragic experience of domination and abuse made possible by distorted notions of male authority in church and in the home that may even cite a text like this as a justification for an abusive approach. And so we have a massive challenge on our hands to understand Colossians 3.18 well, to clear aside all of those interfering ideas and really hear what God has to say through Paul. And so let's come at the text, giving it the permission and the authority to say what it actually says, to come under it, not challenge it. And if we will do that, we'll discover that instead of abuse, there is real beauty. Instead of control, we're going to find real comfort. Instead of an attempt to maintain the ugly status quo in a culture of power, we'll discover a subversive invitation into a new kind of family life. You can't find it anywhere else except under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so what does it mean to submit? Let us first clarify what submission is not. Wives are not the only ones called to submit in the Bible. 
In every case, what's in view is coming under the God-established authority. That's true for children to parents, wives to husbands, church members to church leaders, citizens to civil magistrates, even Christ himself in his incarnation to God the Father. And so submission does not mean inferiority. It does not mean second class. It does not mean restraining of gifts. It doesn't mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Praise the Lord. It doesn't mean avoiding effort to change your husband. Thank you, God. It doesn't mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. And submission never means a wife is required to submit to abuse. So what does the word submit mean? Well, it means line up under. It's a military term, right? Get in rank under. Submission is a voluntary giving oneself up to yield to the authority of another with an inclination to follow his leadership. It's a loyalty in giving oneself up to the husband's will and direction. There is ultimately one will in marriage under God, and it is the husband's. Martin Lord Jones said, It is a giving up of your rights to determine your own life and actively and activity to your husband. Now notice, the command is not, husbands, make your wives submissive. Men can encourage submission by our disposition and our character, but the direction is to the wife. And it is to be a continual submission. To be subject requires a wife to exercise self-denial as she voluntarily gives herself up in loyalty to the leadership of her husband. So here are four R's of submission to flesh this out practically and concretely. Submission embraces a subordinate role. It recognizes and embraces the authority and headship of the husband. You embrace the fact that you are not the head and don't bear the responsibilities that your husband has. Marriage is an ordered equality. To be subject is to exercise a subordinate role, but it is a role that does not imply spiritual inferiority any more than it did when the Son of God submitted himself to Mary and Joseph in his incarnation. And Christ himself set the pattern of submission in his earthly ministry, didn't he? And it was regarded as an honor to him. And so submission is not a mark of inferiority, it's a mark of grace. Submission expects a renunciation of rights. Submission is a self-surrender to support your husband's leadership through a whole self-offering. It's a yielding, it's a deferring. You say to your husband, not my will, but yours be done. Richard Baxter said, The command expects the wife to take the will of the husband to govern her own. Even if you don't agree with the direction or the wisdom of the decision, but you can provide counsel and men are wise to listen to the one whom God has given to them as their helper. So to be subject requires a wife to surrender herself, to support her husband's leadership, but it doesn't mean she suppresses her natural and spiritual talents and graces and gifts, her intellect. She's to bring all that God has made her into a full coordination and cooperation with her husband's leadership. Submission entails an obedient response. 1 Peter 3, verses 5 through 6. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. To be subject includes the wife's practical obedience to the husband, except where such obedience would be disobedience to the Lord Jesus. Right? The church submits to Christ. 
by affirming his authority and following his lead. Jesus explained what he meant by obedience to him in Luke 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Or as he says in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Submission, if it means anything, means to obey. Princess Diana struck out to obey out of her marriage vows. But the godly wife isn't going to break ranks or act unilaterally in defiance of their husband's authority. And then submission expresses a proper respect. Aretha Franklin wanted it, but you have to give it to your husbands. Paul adds in Ephesians 5, verse 33, the wife is to respect her husband. And that word respect means to fear, denoting honor and reverence, suggesting the wife ought to honor and esteem her husband and the role and responsibility that God has given to him. And then, of course, Scripture adds in Ephesians 5 two little words that are a very great challenge. If submission is not enough, Paul adds, in everything. Everything is all-encompassing, including things like finances, raising and disciplining the children, where to live, and what church to attend. Right? You can't say, he can decide where we live, but I get to decide the wall color. There are no asterisks or exclusion clauses. Now, it does not include sin. It does not mean that the wife cannot offer counsel, make an appeal, or disagree with her husband. A wise husband will seek his wife's wisdom and counsel. However, once his will is made known, he's going to take account before God for it. The wife is to graciously support and follow. But why? Because the husband is stronger, sharper, more superior? No, the scripture says it's because it's fitting in the Lord. You who regard the Lord who had regarded you with mercy, this is the way you honor your husband. So how is submission to be manifested? A wife might assess how well she's carrying out this responsibility by considering three A's. What is your attitude toward your husband? Moody, resistant, resentful, discontent, ready to say, I told you so, when his decision works out poorly? Do you speak well of him or demean him before others? How do you address or speak to your husband, respectfully or complaining, interrupting and adding a sarcastic, yes, your highness? No, a wife wife expresses disrespect by disagreeing with him publicly, ordering the husband around, cutting him off while he's speaking. How do you act toward him? Do you actively support his leadership in the home? Do you simply do as he asks? Or do you challenge, manipulate, drag your feet all the way when he gives direction or recommends a certain course of action? How do you respond when your will isn't done? Well, wives, submission is precious to God. It's one of three things called precious in Scripture, along with the blood of Christ and the faith of believers. It is precious in God's sight. But now, a word to husbands. Brothers, you are called by God to be the head of your own household, and that God-given headship is to be exercised with a good heart, a right heart. Headship ought not to go to a husband's head, but it should be exercised with a heart like Christ's. His loving leadership is our pattern. Paul tells husbands, love your wives. Right? Loving your wives is to, be, is to be the soul of your leading her. 
Your love must be like Christ's. The metric of a marriage for a husband is not the question, how well is she submitting, but how well am I loving? And what is love? It is a supernatural grace of God. It cannot be fulfilled by unbelieving men. It's a supernatural grace because it comes from God. Love is grace that is marked by a commitment to an ultimate welfare of the wife. It's willing to give itself up for the highest good of the object loved, namely the wife. Love is an active, unconditional, intentional love. It is constant. It is not to be worn out. Christ never gives up loving his bride. This is a massive calling. And so the nature of this love is that it's a sacrificial love. This is not love of the greeting card variety, but love marked by an unceasing and unconditional commitment to selflessly act for your wife's highest good. Sacrificial love is an active grace, an attentive grace, an initiating grace, a creative grace, a giving grace, an excuse-killing grace and a grace that does not seek its own. So here are four S's to help flesh this love out for men. Consider that Christ's love was a self-giving love. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ voluntarily gave himself up for the church. Christ himself was what the church needed, and he gave himself wholly for her leaving nothing in reserve, not reluctant or stingy, but willing and generous. Christ gave up glory and took on our infirmities and our sins. He took up the guilt of his bride for the sake of his bride. There wasn't anything too costly that he wasn't willing to pay for her. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not love the church by doing what he wanted, but by doing what the church needed. He laid down his very life for her. And as the wife's duty to submit is all-encompassing, the husband's duty to love is all-consuming, demanding the self-denying sacrifice of his life. There should be nothing beneath you that you would not legitimately do for her highest good. It may well require you to swallow your pride, subordinate your preferences, strengthen your your patience, change some diapers, clean some toilets, It was Christ himself that the church needed. Flowers are nice, but what wives need is their husbands. We must be willing to die daily for our wives. Her greatest good may be our self-denial. One of the greatest problems in marriages is that the husband and wife are in love with the same man. The husband is in love with himself. So we may have to put to death certain pleasures, pastimes, or pals to serve our wives. Who is the giver in the family? Who is the sacrificer? Who is the one giving themselves up for the family? It ought to be the husband. We must live determined to be disposable. We're willing to spend and be spent for the sake of our wives. Christ's love is a singular, particular love. Right? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right? Christ had his eye on a special bride. She was the supreme love of his life. Husbands are to give themselves up, not for every woman in the church, not for every woman who lives, but for their wives. As the dear old hymn says, from heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. 
It was, his was a love unlike any other, a love for one alone. Christ took no side glances to any other. He was all about her. Are you all about her? She is to be prized and admired and loved like none other. The Puritan John Ring, Wing wrote that this singular love ought to be the most dear, intimate, precious, and entire that a heart can have toward a creature. None but the love of God is above it. None but the love of self is equal to it. All the love of others is inferior to it. We ought to take pains to make it plain to our wives that they are singularly loved. Your love should be obvious. It should communicate to all that this woman is my woman and she has my heart. Christ's love is an absolutely surprising love. It is not surprising that Christ loved. What is surprising is whom he loved. His love isn't determined by the worthiness of the bride, nor diminished by her unworthiness. Christ's love to the church was a clear-eyed, eyes-wide-open love. He knew the object of his affection intimately. The church was not pretty. She was a hot mess. There is nothing in the bride that merits this love of unmatchable proportion. He knew what he was getting himself into. He saw her with all her warts inside and outside. He loved her when she was unholy. He loved her when she was unlovely. He loved her when she was repulsive. What he knew about her was no obstacle to his love. She was no beauty, no prize. None of her many faults would have surprised him. He loved her while she was unloving and unwilling. Her deformities and defilement did not dampen his love. Her sin was not an obstacle to the exercise of his love. Rather, and this, this is the astonishing and amazing part, her sin was the occasion for his love's highest expression. In her most unlovable condition, he made the greatest manifestation of love ever. This isn't some kind of Cinderella story. Heaven's holy prince was married to earth's harlot, and he continues to love her even when she sins. His pursuit is relentless. Husbands, consider the staggering implications of Christ-like, unconditional, freely given love. Our love, unlike Christ, began drawn by what was appealing and attractive about our bride, and she gave a reciprocal response. This is, this is perfectly natural. And then, in the garden of this delight, weeds began to appear, spoiling the view. Boils and warts and wrinkles appeared in her appearance and behavior. In such a landscape, our love may be given less freely, with conditions attached. Right? I would love her more if only she would fill in the blank. But this is entirely unlike the love of God in Christ, which is relentless and unfailing, freely given. You cannot let sin be the occasion to quench your love, but the occasion to manifest your love to your wife. We don't play games as if sin doesn't exist. We looked sin straight in the eyes and said, I am not going to let you destroy my love. And then Christ's love is a sanctifying love. Husbands, love your wives with a sanctifying purpose. Christ gave himself to sanctify and cleanse his bride, to present her to himself, pure and spotless. He died to deliver her from her sins and the world by washing her with the word. He did this to present her to himself perfect in holiness. He laid down his life to make her his with the intention of making her beautiful, pure and perfect, sinless and spotless. His love is not satisfied until his bride is glorified. 
Our love ought to have the sanctifying name to help and guide and promote our wives' growth in grace to make them more like Christ, washing her with the word of the gospel, helping her put on Christ in all the beauty of his holiness and righteousness and goodness. So husbands, do you care for your wife's soul? Are you seeing to it as she is spiritually growing? Are you a real help or a hindrance to her as she seeks to please Christ and glorify God in all she does? Certainly, you are not the only sanctified influence in her life, but you should be the most constant and consistent. Can she look to you and depend on you to encourage her unlike any other on the way to glory? Is your love for her making her more ready for heaven? Don't say you love your wife if you give her everything she wants for this day, but nothing that she needs for the last day. And finally, not only are we to love our wives, but Paul gives us one other word here, doesn't he? He tells us not to be bitter toward our wives. Now, why do you think he put that there? He's coming back to the gospel, isn't he? Bitterness is the heart attitude of unforgiveness. The wife has disrespected the husband, maybe withheld marital relations at some point, maybe said something unkind or cutting, maybe didn't support him in a decision he made, and so he becomes bitter toward her. He doesn't forgive her. He doesn't love her the way he should. He's forgotten to check back in at the cross. And that's what we all must do when our spouse sins against us. We remember our need for the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. We remember his mercy and grace to forgive us our sins and to not count our trespasses against us. We remember his promise, I will remember your sins no more. And it's only when we come back to the cross and the empty tomb, resting afresh in our Redeemer's work for us, that we can extend gospel grace to our spouse. And beloved, his grace is enough. Christ's glory and grace are sufficient to strengthen and sustain godly marriages till death do us part or Christ comes to take his bride home. So look to Christ, dear church. He is with you to the end. Let's pray together. Lord God, we long for marriages that are characterized by the beauty of complete obedience to Jesus. The truth is, there's not one marriage or soul here that can say they've arrived yet. We're all in process. We're all struggling. And so often the priorities and the paradigms of the world, the idols of the world, still find their way into our hearts. Our hearts are constantly manufacturing them. So we come before you, having heard your word, to repent and to believe again the gospel. We want to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts anew. Lord, there may be some here this morning who do not know Jesus, who have been pursuing empty lovers in the hope that in them they would find rest. And now they're here, broken and burnt out and world-weary. Lord God, grant that they may hear the voice of Christ the Bridegroom calling to them at last. And may they flee to him, run to him, take hold of him, believe on him, rest on him, and receive true rest from him, and know his love that surpasses all understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.